because the text we're going to look at today is somewhat of a continuation of the previous section. Now, what's interesting about this word is that this word is what we get um, in, its, in its word groupings is where we get the word politics from or metropolis. And so another way to think about this is conduct yourself as a citizen of the gospel of Christ. Now, I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and I began to think, well, what does it mean to be a citizen of something? What does it mean uh, for us as American citizens? So what I did was I was really cool, and I typed into Google, what does it mean to be an American citizen? When in doubt, just put the whole question in there, and Google will give you all the answers to life. And I came across this speech by, by a man named, let me get the name right here, make sure, the Honorable Lee H. Hamilton, who was a, a congressman from Indiana for many years and still works in Washington. But at the end, he has this whole speech, very interesting, on what it means to be an American citizen. And he says this at the end, what does it mean to be an American citizen? It means that we are blessed to be part of this nation. We are concerned about a shortage of civic awareness and engagement, and we should act to affect meaningful change and accountable government through countless avenues for civic action. Above all, it means we are responsible for tending to our own democracy, making it work for all and transmitting it to our children better than we inherited it. You accept the responsibility of being an American citizen. Fortunately, there are many more Americans like you, but not enough. Our charge is to spread this message anew to all Americans. And I found this extremely helpful in looking at our passage today about what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom in that there are certain, there are certain requirements of what we need to do. There is a message, there is a lifestyle to pass on to the next generation, and there's also this idea that he talks about of spreading what it means to be an American to all other Americans. And so today we're going to sort of look at that same thing. We're going to see how being a citizen of God's kingdom affects how we live, affects what we do, and we need to pass it on to the, the next generation, and we need to share it with others in our circumstances. So that is sort of going to be where we're going, sort of the big idea for today. But let's, let's start by looking at the first two verses, and I'm going to be reading them in piecemeal as we go through them. And the first big point, uh, Jesse, please, is that gospel-living people are united. People who are living as citizens of God's kingdom, go ahead to the next one, Jesse, thank you, are, are united, okay? And we see this in verse two. Let me read those two together. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, I first want to look at verse 1 there. Notice that we have four ifs, okay? Now, the answer to all these ifs is yes, in Paul's mind. The assumption is, okay, if you have had any encouragement from being 
united with Christ? And the assumption here is, yes, you have. Okay? So Paul's stating it as an if, but he knows that it's true. So if there's been any comfort from his love, and we have comfort from Christ's love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if we have community with the Spirit, which we do, if we've received any tenderness or compassion from those in the body and from Christ himself. And again, the, the assumption is, yes, we have. So if all of these are true, then what do we do? I'm going to break this down into four ways, as it is here. By being like-minded, first of all. This is how we're united. We're united in how we think, in our view of the world, how we make decisions, that we have the same, you could say, worldview. That we as a body, not that we think exactly the same thing, but that we have the same outlook on life. An outlook that is through the lens of the gospel. Next, we see that we're to be united in having the same love. And this is really done in two ways here. Okay, this is understood as the love that we've received from other people and the love that we have received from Christ. Now, it's probably not true, but someone might try to deny that they've received love from other people in the body, so you can't, but you can't deny that we have all received love from Christ, right? And so what Paul is saying here is if you've received any love from any person or from Christ, and again, the assumption is you've both, then you need to have that same type of love to everyone else. Next is, is being one in spirit. Now, the idea here is, is harmony, that we have harmony, that we strive for harmony in the body here, among our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then lastly, that we're one in purpose. There's a common goal that we all work towards, that this is not a social club where we all just come together and have lunch or hang out, but that there is a community, but it's an active community, and we all have one purpose. And that purpose is, like we've seen again and again, is one, growing in our own walks, but also sharing with others and helping them to come in the body. Now, how are we to do this? Interestingly, as, as I've been looking at this text, it's sort of like a um, it's sort of like a backward sermon. Okay, the applications at the end, and then all the reasoning is, is at the beginning, and then all the reasonings at the end. And so, at the goal here is we have be united in all these different ways. So how are we going to do that? And that's in verses three and four. We're going to see that gospel living people are humble. Okay, how do you bring about unity? It comes through humility. Let's look at the text here. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the first way that we're humble is our opinions about ourselves and others. Okay, what we think about us and what we think about 
the other people who aren't us. Now he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now what's really interesting about selfish ambition here is that it comes from a word that can describe a mercenary. Okay, we all know mercenaries were soldiers who were not fighting because of some moral imperative or because they believed in a cause, but they fight because they get paid. Okay, and so the idea here is that you're doing things just so that you'll get stuff or just so that you'll get what you want. Okay, that you're being a mercenary with your actions. A powerful word picture here. And the other, vain conceit, this idea of you do things so that people will think better of you, that you can be puffed up with pride because people like you or people think you're smart or people think, you know, whatever they think. But you notice that the focus of the action is so that I can think good of myself and that other people will think good of me. But, okay, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, okay, but instead, okay, what's what's interesting is is in grammar we call this an adversative, where we get the word adversary, and so it's standing in sharp contrast. So don't do this, but do this, because they're total opposites. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Interestingly, in in literature about the same time of this, humility was actually considered not a good characteristic trait. It was considered weakness. It was considered shameful to act humbly. But here, Paul is using it positively, that we should be humble. And I think that this idea comes across still today in our context, that people still think that it's bad to be humble. Because if I'm humble, then people will walk over me. Or if I'm humble, I'll never get what I need. People will take advantage. Whatever, whatever excuse that we have that we want to make up in our minds. But Paul says this is a great thing. And what we're supposed to do this, in this humble way, we're to consider others better than ourselves. Now I want to write this down because I think this is a, a good verse, and I think especially appropriate for me to read it. But 1 Peter 5.5 5 says this, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's a quote at the end there from Proverbs 3.34. But we see in other places... And notice humility and humbleness is mentioned twice in there. So where you have repetition there, you have importance. But this, this attitude that we need to have is, is opening ourselves up to being taken advantage of, sure. But time and time again, this is an attitude that we need to have in order to live like Christ, and to be united as one body. Peter O'Brien, who, uh, who wrote about this passage, says this, Such an attitude presupposes a due sense of unworthiness, especially before God, as well as a readiness to see and rejoice in the good in fellow believers. So on one hand, we're humble because we know how much greater God is than us. 
but at the same time, it's also a willingness to see good in others. And I thought about um, an example, which I'm sure no one has ever experienced before, but say you have multiple siblings or multiple children, depending on who you are, and you're playing Monopoly, okay? Everybody picture this. <laughs> By the chuckles, I see that you guys already get what I'm about to say. Um, so let's say you have three kids, and you're playing Monopoly with them, and what happens when one of them wins? Do their siblings rejoice greatly for them and say, oh, you have bested me again. (laughs) But I am so happy that you won today. We, of course, know that this happens all the time. And as the middle child, um, I was always like this, you know, even though I wasn't the favorite or the firstborn, you know. But in the same way, how many times do we either get jealous or angry when someone else, when something good happens to them, when their ministry succeeds and ours isn't doing so well, when people like them a lot more than us, when we consider others better than ourselves, we learn not only to see ourselves in sober judgment in relation to God, but we also rejoice with them. And rejoicing takes away bitterness. Rejoicing takes away anger. So in that way, humility is a necessary thing to build unity. In our Peacemaker class, we've also talked about winning arguments. And I think this is applicable here too. I think the phrase goes something like, if you want to win an argument, you've already lost. You know, not that any married couples here would know about that. Um, If you're out to win, you've already lost it. And the same thing when we have arguments here. If If we're out to win, if we're out to get the other person, we've already lost the argument. Now, secondly, in verse 4, it's not only our view of the other person, but how we view our wants and our desires and our needs. Verse 4, Paul says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Ephesians 5, 28 to 30 is really helpful in, in sort of looking at this another way. Uh, this is where Paul is talking to husbands and wives at the end of Ephesians, and he says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, nine times out of ten, we do not need to hear, take care of yourself and what you want. Now, as I'm about to say this, I know that some people will be thinking, well, what about this situation? Or what about this time? And I recognize that there are times where certain people need to be said, hey, take care of yourself. You know, we see this especially in in abuse situations or neglect, okay? But we can't make our rules on the exceptions. And exceptions are exceptions because they're exceptions, okay? So 99% of the time, isn't that a great definition? Yeah. (laughs) 99% of the time, we don't need to hear take care of yourself. Paul says, whoever hated his own body, 
okay? What we need to hear is think of the other person. Now, now some people, when you hear this preach, will make sure to emphasize, well, it's look not only to your interest, but also to the interest of others. And again, I think that's sort of letting us off the hook because we're like, well, I'm looking out for both, but nine times out of a ten, ours wins. And so I think that we really need to stress this looking to the needs of the other person. Because again, it, our natural tendency is to take care of ourselves, but our natural tendency is not to take care of other people. Now, we are united through humility. Humility builds being united, okay? Now, the next part of this chain here is that gospel-living people follow Christ's example. So just as humility leads to unity, Christ's example helps us to be humble. Okay, so understanding who Christ is breeds in us humility, which then brings about unity. Okay, so notice, notice the pattern here. Notice the chain. Okay? Now, this, this next section, and, and some of you may have Bibles that sort of make this look like poetry. Um, this section is really important on uh, how we view Christ. Um, whole books have been written on just these next verses. I've read parts of some of them. <laughs> but, uh, but rarely in Scripture do you find a more dense place of who Christ is than right here. So if you're looking for something to memorize, here are a good six verses right here. Um, but let's look. Let's look at Christ's example. And I want to look at it in, in four ways. So let me read verses 5 and 6 here. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, look, you got to act like Jesus. You have to think like Jesus. Your whole attitude, your whole life needs to be focused on pursuing who Jesus is and what he's done. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on this verse right here. Because what does it mean to be grasping at equality with God because Jesus is fully God, just as God the Father is? And what you can do to sort of help understand this is where it says who being, before that, you can have an understood because. Okay, so because Jesus was in the very nature of God. Because he was in the same nature, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Or, another way to understand that verb is to take advantage. He did not need to take advantage of what it meant to be God. He didn't exploit his godness for his own desires. Okay, because he was God, he didn't, he didn't need to. He didn't need to say, look, I could call down, you know, when he's in the garden, he says, I could call down legions of angels. He chose not to. He chose not to exploit all the power that he had. So what do we learn from this? We learn that he did not pursue his own self-interest when he came. He did not just look out for number one. Okay, when he came, he came, as the next verse says there, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
Now, what we see here is that Jesus did not pursue his own self-interest, and in doing that, he became one of us. He became fully man. Notice that this is voluntarily. He made himself nothing. He chose to come down from heaven to be born as a baby, as Joe put, as a, as a dot on the edge of the Roman Empire. Okay, he was born in a barn. Okay, heaven, being born in a barn. See the difference? A little different. Maybe it was a really nice barn. I don't know. But, but then he said he came in the very nature of a servant. So he took on the characteristics of being a servant. Mark 10.45 says this. Jesus is talking here, so he says about himself, For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came with a purpose, and his purpose was to serve us by saving us. It continues on being made in human likeness. He was totally a human. He fully participated in everything it means to be human. He got tired. He had people hate him. He got hungry. Okay? Fully human. Fully tempted as we are. But what did he do with this? Verse 8. We're going to see that he died a humiliating death. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I want us again to notice he humbled himself. Notice it wasn't he was humbled, but he humbled himself. Again, bring up this fact that voluntarily Christ came and died. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You guys have that in your Bibles there. And the reason that there is a focus on how Jesus died is because crucifixion, as some of you may have known, was very, was a humiliating death. It was very shameful. It was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. In fact, a um, writer named F.F. F. Bruce says this, that in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. So you think of Roman citizens at the time, who were sort of the aristocrats, the high class, they wouldn't even mention the word cross because it would not be polite dinner conversation. So, but we see in this picture, okay, first we see Christ coming down to live among us, left the glory of heaven to be born in a barn, and he died a humiliating death. So we see how Christ was truly humble from how he was born to even how he died. Humility that probably none of us will ever experience truly. Verse 9, therefore, okay, because of this, okay, the therefore, it looks back, because Jesus came down, because he put aside his self-interest, because he offered himself to serve us, as a servant. Therefore, he was exalted by God. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I feel like we should put an amen at the end of that. A lot of time in Paul's writings, he'll be talking and he'll just get sort of caught up and he just sort, sort of goes off. And, you know, you can hear it in there. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You know, it's, <laughs> he gets carried away because it's so great. And when we read it, sometimes we don't get that emotion in there. Now, we see that as a servant, he was exalted by God to the highest place, not just to a high place or a nice place. Okay, the highest place. Okay, notice the use of, of superlatives or, or talking about the best, the first, okay? Highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, gave him the most important name. The idea here is that Jesus is the universal king. Okay, sort of goes back to walking as a citizen of the king. So this idea of king comes in here. And notice he got to be king because he became a servant. And he didn't exalt himself. He was exalted by God. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And and the idea here is not so much that every time someone hears the name Jesus, they should, you know, bow. But it's more the idea that in honor of who Jesus is, we worship, we bow down. Okay? So the name is in, in the literature like this is really tied up with who the person is. So this is more a reference to because Jesus is who he is, because he has the character, he has, that he has been exalted by God, that we must worship him. Notice every knee, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Okay, the use of those three shows it's everybody. Every tongue. Again, Jesus is the universal king. There's no one like him. Now, in verse 11, I want to look there. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, everyone will have to confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the King. Now, some people will do this begrudgingly because they will have rejected him in their lives, but they can't deny the truth on that final day. But regardless of who a person is, when that final day comes, they will acknowledge. Now, the last phrase there, to the glory of God the Father. All of this was done to reveal God's glory. This whole plan of Jesus humiliating himself was done for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And notice that God's hand was in all of it. God's plan could not be averted. Now, one quick point of application here 
is that we are free to humble ourselves like Christ did because when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. So when we worry that when we humble ourselves, people will run us over or take advantage of us, we have that freedom because God is in control and he wants us to be humble and he'll protect us just as he does through all life. And so, we have no reason not to emulate Jesus. Notice, he humiliated himself, but when it came time for the exaltation, he was exalted. God exalted him. We have that same thing. We need to choose to humble ourselves when we deal with others when we deal with God, especially, because we know that God will exalt us, that he will lift us up. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In my reading for, for, this, for this sermon, I came across this, this quote um, by Dr. O'Brien, and he says this, Christ becomes what we are, thus enabling us to become what he is. And I found that extremely powerful. Because of what Christ did, because he humbled himself, that we can do the same thing by his power. And that we rely on his work in our lives and the model that he gave us. Okay, there are four gospels Okay, we got plenty of model to follow in there. Okay? And we can only do so because of the grace given to us by Christ through his death. And we see that people who live worthy of that gospel are united through humility through the model and following of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.